0: How can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership
1: of commons, the air,
0: soils, water, biological diversity, back Cultural to the diversity point. is as Severe critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable place, the only thing which is sustainable. That's mad. place that you love is now under siege.
1: Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet.
0: These are system problems. Our humanity is a state. We shouldn't ask whether we can survive These are existential questions as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of place. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. Because if it could only be in the hands of a few, it could never bring change. John Todd delivered his speech, Ecological Design Reinventing the Future, on October
1: 27th, 2001. Let's have a look at it. What is Ecological Design? Ecological design is the intelligence of nature applied to human needs. The natural world for the last three and a half billion years has been inventing, experimenting, evolving, uh, developing associations and relationships that are so powerful, it's almost incredible to contemplate. In aggregate, they represent all life as we know it, and the relationship of that all-life to the mineral realms and the atmospheric and aquatic realms that sustain the complete living family which inhabit this Earth. So, I would argue that ecological design is one way of forming a new partnership between the ecological needs of the planet and humanity. So... Where does one go to learn? How does one start along this journey? I think that really is the issue. And I think the way is the way that Starling alluded to. You find a piece of the world, an ecosystem or an ecology that has meaning to you. And then you go into that system and begin to learn its narratives, its stories, its relationships and its architecture, and out of all of that, begin to become. You begin to start decoding the blueprints and roadmaps for the design of human artifacts and infrastructures. For example, um, the forest is one of our greatest, uh, one of our greatest teachers. If you lie on your back in the forest and just contemplate looking up through the trees, the architectural forms, they're not only beautiful, they have great meaning for designers. If you calculate or look at how the forest allots its resources and how in its soils it builds uh, food chains and relationships, what is going on there? What does it do that we need to know how to do to sustain ourselves in the future? That's the interesting story. One of the largest creatures on earth, a fungi, lives underneath us in the forest. Scarcely understood, but what it does, great meaning for us. How is it that systems sustain diversity and longevity? And how is it that these, uh, these systems over time are able to deal with perturbations? The answers lie in this story, the story of ecosystems. One can also go to other environments and and learn from them. For example, coral reefs tell you a lot about how to work in a nutrient-poor, sun-rich world. Or prairies, or mangroves, where the sea and the land come together. Or savannas, or deserts, where everything seemed to be kind of etched. But the full panoply of relationships go on in the desert. Or oceanic meadows and I 'll show you an example of this in the slides in a few minutes um, all of these places can become our teachers and tell us what to do. Um, so what that intelligence has to the next stage is to take nature's intelligence and technologically apply it to in order to reduce the negative human footprint on this planet and I argue and I think Amory would back me up here from a different set of perspectives that it is possible using nature's intelligence to reduce the negative human imprint on this planet by 90% so there is a real reason to be hopeful if we can decode this information soon enough and then apply it in our daily lives um, over the last several decades, I've been fortunate to work with some really incredible colleagues uh, to begin to invent and evolve a, a family of, of, of living technologies. And these are, are technologies which, in fact, bring ecological ideas and apply them to, directly to human needs. For example, um, to food production or to the generation of fuels or to the conversion of waste, or to the repairing of environments, or to education and teaching, or to architecture. And interestingly enough, over the last 10 years, 15 years, these technologies have begun to spread themselves around the world. Um, For example, uh, the processing of high strength food waste from industries, We're now working in Brazil and Australia and United States. For the conversion of industrial waste, organic materials, industrial waste, projects have taken place in Canada and England. And for the transformation of human waste into new products and pure water in Asia and North America and Europe. And for environmental repair in the United States, China, and Central Europe. So it is, these ideas that you'll see in a moment, are moving out into the world. Maybe not quickly enough, but at least they've started. And, um, and I think that that is the, another reason for hope and optimism in these times. Today I want to focus on, on two areas um, of our current uh, efforts at Ocean Arcs International. And Ocean Arcs International is a Vermont based uh, not for profit uh, found by Nancy Jack Todd and myself about 20 years ago. If I could have the lights out and the first slide, I think this will, will get somebody's going to need to turn the slide projector on, which is. Uh, Okay, I don't expect you to see that. That's kind of a, a kind of a Tony under feeling type slide that has no information whatsoever, other than it's mysterious. It's a it's a kind of a way for people to get the uh, get the slide projector going and things moving. And um, but I want to start by talking about the repair of damaged and polluted waters. Um, This is a drawing of a small pond on on Cape Cod, which way back since the early 1980s has been receiving about 30 million gallons a year of toxic waste from a local landfill and, and septage waste dump. In other words, that pond which is connected to the drinking water table of that town is being assaulted each year by about 30 million gallons of this waste from a local landfill, and um, so our challenge was: the pond was pretty dead. There was no life on the bottom. Um, it was had gone without. Uh, it had lost its oxygen, and its ability to self-maintain and self-heal had been lost. So the first thing we did, back in um, the uh, about 1990, was to put these floating windmills on the surface and what they did is when they spin they have a blade underneath the water and it creates upwelling so the dead bottom water comes to the surface where it's exposed to light and then it sheets across the, the surface of the water and then into that environment uh, we introduced um, um, very finely ground rock flour to provide a mineral basis for the transformation kind of the remineralization of that pond And that began to create the healing process, but the poor pond was being hammered like crazy. So we invented a floating technology called Restorers. And what a Restorer is, is a device, in this case powered by the sun and wind, that pumps water up through cells on the surface, and in each cell is a different type of ecology which is put in there to carry out a specific task. And so the water then flows through the, the roughly nine cells that you can see on that drawing in the top, the the bottom part of the picture is what it looks like floating in the water with its underwater cells. And the top is sort of flipped over facing you to see how how it's done. And this now is also a partnership, not just between microorganisms, but between higher plants, snails, clams, and fishes. We've got all of these characters working together to effect a change. And what these structures do is begin to act like uh, what bacteriologists call chemostats. They actually make beneficial organisms which flow out around the pond. And it's so effective that within two years that was not only able to increase the biological diversity fourfold, but to digest 25 inches or over two feet of sediments which had been accumulating because the natural digestive metabolism, this pond was constipated. And what this did was uncork it, to be blunt. Um, now, as we began to sort of learn more about these things, the problems that we began to face increased as well. Here is a, up in the top corner is a, is a drawing of a restorer that is in a very, very large lagoon. And into that lagoon comes... A million and a half gallons a day of high-strength organic waste that comes from a poultry processing plant this is in Berlin Maryland that that they process they slaughter a million chickens a week and that lagoon was all that there was between the processing plant and Chesapeake Bay the coast and this story is all over a similar story so we we built this, this uh, huge structure, the, the, the underwater parts, which you can just barely see in the drawings. They're sort of artificial kelp forests that hang down, and then they have very gentle air that does upwellings underneath them. And on top of that, we planted 28,000 different kinds of higher plants, including trees and shrubs, and, of course, many different kinds of animals to create a floating ecology that would take that high-strength waste and, and, uh, and purify the water. Um, this is, a, this is a, a view of it uh, from afar, still under construction, but you get some idea the size of this. It's uh, uh, you know miles of material here. Um, that's a drawing which is upside down and backwards, which is just as well because then I won't have to explain it technologically to you and you don't want to hear it mostly anyway. Um, but there is the idea that the, the plants have only just been planted for a few weeks, and, and uh, they, they simply grew remarkably quickly. Many different kinds of plants, each with different roles, some that break down some compounds, some which sequester others. And there you can see the gentle aeration. Um, what, this, what this technology did was allow us to reduce the electrical power to convert that waste, which was activated sludge, the conventional, by a factor of five, one fifth, the energy was all required to do that, and we could do better. Um, uh, we can even do better than that. But we reduce their energy requirements by five times, and we reduce their capital costs in half. Again, the idea of 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 these floating ecological complexes um, really have a a a powerful role to play, and we're now beginning to see these. As, uh, as, as being very helpful in agriculture because they can be built cost-effectively enough to actually allow farm use, uh, whereas most conventional treatment is too expensive. It would put the farmers out of business. Here is a chance um, uh, to change the equation. There's also another way to change the equation. One can introduce into these systems products, commercial products, both plants and fish. So it's also possible to combine an on-farm waste conversion with a new form of food production, namely aquaculture, and actually turn it from a cost into, a, into, a, into an uh, enterprise, which I'll, I'll get back to in a moment, because that's the, um, what I'd mostly like to talk about. Um, this is a, a, uh, a city in, in South China, Fuzhou. And uh, Fuzhou has... Uh, 80 kilometers of canals, it's uh, the population, I think uh, the inner population is about 1.4 million, and into these canals, uh, which you can see down there, uh, almost all, about 900,000 people, uh, their waste goes directly into the canals. So raw sewage is floating throughout that city. And so we have just uh, made an agreement with them to begin building restorers along the canals. Um, and it'll be a huge job because there are 80 kilometers or roughly 50 miles of canals that we have to do. And so it will be a, a joint enterprise. But we're also kind of exciting about it because um, wherever fish are able to survive in that particular in, in that city, um, people get really excited. And what we'll be able to do is to have fish surviving Everywhere throughout the city, and breeding and growing, and hopefully cleaning it up enough so that the fish themselves won't be too contaminated. That's the plan, and that's the hope. Um, this is just a, a a drawing of the of the floating restore on the canal. It's it's a drawing with the plants on either side and the walkways that uh, people can be able to walk along the canals as well as uh, as well as uh, purify the water. And uh, this is just a cross-sectional view my chinese is awful so i can't tell you whether it says good things or bad things about us in that slide <laughs> um but uh, that would give you some idea of what the water column would look like um so the possibility of and this of course will also combine uh, uh, biological productivity including in, including some uh, of the medicinal herbs that the that the, the Chinese are so brilliant at we're already doing experiments on on these herbs in a, in a project in in Hawaii right now um, now I want to take you to the uh, to the to really the, the the heart of my talk today which is uh, um, the, the the second area and it's, it's an example I believe of, of natural capitalism at work um, we meaning ocean arcs are part of a team uh, a, creating an eco-industrial park in Burlington, Vermont. Um, And it has an agricultural theme. Um, An um, eco-industrial park, I think, is something you're gonna be hearing a lot about in the next few years. And what it really is, is it's enterprises that share their resources so that the waste or the excess of one piece will be a input component to another piece. And the idea is to create an ecology of enterprises that provide synergies amongst themselves, reduce their costs, share, say, expertise, you know, things, technical expertise, like legal expertise, and so on, and uh, so there's the synergetics, the human skills, and what you end up with, if it's done right, are economic gains. Uh, great improvements in environmental quality rather than having emissions everywhere. Your goal is to move towards a, a zero emissions strategy. And you also have this wonderful um, um, human resource development. And so it's, uh, it really is, I guess, a working ecology. And here is a, a section in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Um, it's called the Intervale. And the Intervale is 700 acres of bottom land right in the, right in the city. And it has become a, an amazing uh, incubator of new farmers. Uh, for example, the, the, the Intervale Foundation, which manages it, allows initiate farmers to come in. They provide them with land. They provide them with tools. They provide them with mentoring. And they begin to develop the skills without having to require the capital costs that sort of really chokes most agricultural innovation. And so the only thing they ask of these young farmers is that when they get good, they in turn have to, have to uh, 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 mentor. So they have a, a pyramid scheme for good going on there. And, uh, and, and, and good it is and there is a lot, of, a lot of innovation both in terms of the ecological management of livestock there, uh, most of the city of Burlington's organic resources are composted down there in a viable compost facility um, a lot of experimentation I think here you can see in the background or in the middle ground uh, experimenting with grape varieties and in the foreground with uh, small fruits also uh, uh, a lot of seed trials um, uh, Shep Ogden and uh, Cook's Garden Seeds are, are constantly. So it is, it, is, it is kind of a hotbed of innovation, and it's surrounded by, uh, by, the, by the, the great vision of Will Rapp, who is the president of Gardner's Supply. And it has the, the support of the city. Um, and so it, uh, it, uh, it really is only natural that this, this yeasty area would begin to talk and think about an ecological industrial park that has a agricultural focus, and in the background, I want you to notice one of the key pieces. That white building uh, won't get any awards for architecture. I can tell you that much. Um, is uh, is the is a wood chip uh, electrical fuel generating plant. In other words, it takes uh, wood chips from the uh, forest industry and burns these to produce. Um, Um, To produce electricity, it's the largest uh, wood chip plant in the country. Now, what it's been doing, and you can see it sort of—it's a little bright in here—but I'll I'll use your imagination. Um, There is all this steam going off because it requires cooling towers, and this all this steam produces this local climate, which uh, which picks up uh, dust and things like that, and makes the neighbors angry. And it also uh, cuts down the sunlight in the area because of all these clouds coming off these cooling towers so at the beginning step of the eco park is no more cooling towers, all that hot water goes underground into radiant heating, into buildings in which things happen including greenhouse like growing buildings, in other words the catalyst here is uh, is to use all that heat and ironically enough just by the the park committing to use the heat it tips the economics of the power generating plant into a much favorable position and so uh, uh, uh that's really important so the the key players in putting together the the eco park are the uh, are the city of burlington uh which got the uh, um the, the the seed funding provided the seed funding and the intervale foundation uh which is the developer and uh and uh So when we began to put this eco-park together, uh, there were businesses of two types that we looked at. And the first type, of course, any developer likes, and that's businesses who are banging on the door saying they want in and they're not even asking yet what the rent is. Um, And that include the the composting community, the compost enterprise who want to diversify their products. It also include a, a local brewer who wanted to make organic beers there because the Intervale is, is all organic. It also included a, a fish farming group, of which I'm a part, and also a group of people who want to grow uh, foods for the city year-round. Burlington currently is creeping up on, on producing 4 four to 5% of its food. It would someday like to get up to 8 or 9% of its food. And they have these food security, food uh, uh, issues that they're working very hard on, and it's very very critical. Um, this is a, a um, uh, one of the, the, the gardens in the Intervale, um, and uh, and I think the uh, the gardener supply company is there on the right. Uh, a number of uh, a really very beautiful, attractive area, and as I said, a hive of activity. Um, the um, there is a second group of businesses uh, that that were evaluated, and what happened there is that uh, um, Professor Carl Sampson from Delft University uh, in Holland, um, it's Holland's premier business college, uh, shipped over um, seven of his top students and asked them to evaluate businesses that would fit into an eco park in Burlington, Vermont, because it's, uh, these are all going to have to be place-based. And, um, and they found, they identified by talking to people who were interested and doing a preliminary analysis of the business potential, that they found six businesses that belonged in the eco-park. The first business was a greenhouse business. There's just a demand for greenhouse space. The, the second business was Cut Flowers, which showed a good return on the investment. Uh, including um, uh, dealing with flowers that have to be grown in an organic environment, which, as you know, is, is much, much trickier than, than normal. And the third business was a bakery, and uh, American Flatbread was very interested in being part of that. The fourth business that was viable from their analysis was a restaurant. And the, the uh, um, fifth business, which was uh, um, uh, marginal, but still viable was the idea of a gourmet organic popcorn. Um, and uh, so that it did look as though it would fly. In other words, it would attract investor money. Uh, the, the sixth business um, was mushrooms, which looked very, 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 very viable because of all this organic material around. And, and, but before they could say yes to it, um, some R&D had to be done. And uh, we decided to do it, and I'll tell you about it in a moment. Um, there were also three businesses that failed. Um, the first one was potato chips, even organic potato chips. Apparently, the potato chip industry is controlled by two or three giants, and it's very hard to get into niches when it comes to potato chips. Um, the, the, the second business, one recommended by Gunter Pauli, was the idea of use, using uh, uh, making biological plastics and things like that that could degrade for wrapping and packaging. And without the potatoes, the excess potato, and or other materials like that handy here, that wouldn't work. Uh, When one failed, it, it led to the next one failing. And the third one, biodiesel, also failed in this context. Now, what the the MBAs were very uh, clear about saying is that those three that failed in Burlington might succeed in any number of other places. So that makes the eco-industrial park concept a, a very definitely a, a place-specific enterprise, which would have, I think, pleased Fritz Schumacher uh, very much. So, um, our work in the uh, in the on the eco-industrial park um, is is does represent sort of ecological design. Um, how am I doing for time here? I guess I'm okay. Um, down, the first project I wanna tell you about is you get down this garden path and you see that little greenhouse in the background. We're just gonna duck inside that greenhouse. Um, and inside there, you've got all these uh, 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 plastic uh, tanks that are connected together in groups of four. And what we have done there um, and I think you, you'll, you'll be able to see it in a moment, although maybe not. What we've done there is gone to the eelgrass community, which is a marine community in shallow waters, and said, what do you know? How is it that you are the most, one of the most productive places on Earth, how do you do it? And we then take and try and do what they do inside those tanks, and, uh, and develop a freshwater analog of an eelgrass community. And um, oh, I don't know whether you can see that. That's a fish. They tend not to be photogenic when they're three feet under the water. Um, that is a golden tilapia. Um, can anybody see any of these? Or are they just too bright? That's a. You can see that. Okay. I guess I just can't. I need a periscope. Um, so that's 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 a big uh, a, a big blue tilapia there. Um, and I should only add uh, the uh, one of the world's leaders in this kind of aquaculture, I believe is in the room today, and that's uh, John Reed of uh, Bioshelters, Inc. Um, but this is what I want to show you. Um, each, there are four cells, and they're all connected, and the water goes round and round between the cells. In the first cell, we have nothing but fish. And what fishes do two things, apart from being groovy. They, 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 they feed, and they make waste. Sound familiar? Um, and so what they do is, is, uh, is, um, is feed in there. And you can see screens in there. Those are screens on which we culture communities that are attached algae. Remember when you look at a stream in the summertime and at all the stuff flowing? It's those kind of communities that are grown elsewhere in the system, but we put them into the fish. Um, then the second tank. And this is where the, the, the eelgrass community comes in. What eelgrass communities do is slow down the movement of water, build up sediments, produce, produce the foundation of food chains. And so in this system, we have things like uh, clams and all different kinds of burrowing animals. We have the, the artificial media, which is, uh, simulates, and then we also have a number of, of aquatic plant species, which are critical to it. So it produces its own oxygen. Uh, using uh, sunlight as the driving wheel. What it also does is take waste, which are normally a terrible thing in aquaculture, and convert it to sediments as part of the growth cycle. So we're not spending a ton of energy and chemicals and electricity trying to convert ammonia into, uh, into nitrites and, and then off-gas it. We're actually trying to make bottom sediments. We don't have to worry about what's going on in there because the fish are not in there. The fish are somewhere else in the system, as you've seen. Then in the third tank, uh, the process continues, but we don't put sediments in because we now want to make sure that the water quality is so clear the fish can live further downstream, but by this time we're floating horticultural crops on the surface. The water then continues on its journey to the fourth tank, which is made up of, of higher plants growing on the bottom, and these screens which are lift out, and when you look at them under the microscope or either under hand lens, they're just crawling with animals and plankton as well as, the, uh, as, as, well as uh, over a dozen species of, of green and blue green algae. And, and the thing is all powered by fish wastes and sunshine. And, uh, and uh, so then you can start, uh, you can throw away a lot of the chemicals and a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the other things that happen in, in conventional aquaculture. And you really do simulate what the eelgrass community knows. The, when you look at the conversion efficiencies on this system, um, the, uh, if you just do nothing um, but let the fish grow, um, you get a half a pound of input equals a pound of output. Um, mind you, they grow more slowly than we want them to grow. If you then supplement their diet with with converted waste and a small amount of... of uh, of uh, professionally formulated feed, you you have extremely high efficiencies and, and the growth that's necessary to make it commercially viable. So now the fish from this system are are uh, are going into a CSA and uh, and, are, and are and are part of a CSA program and uh, and the the people are, we can't produce enough yet. Mind you, we're 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 not at a commercial scale yet. Um, And there's just a view of those screens I was telling you about, and you could just see halfway up the sort of the density of those communities. And the more fish you have, of course, the faster the algae grow, provided the the light is there. And uh, you can see some idea of how that works. We also take the strongest, richest water from where the fish are hanging out, and we we pipe it into into, uh, flow tanks, uh, aquaponic flow tanks, where uh, where where we grow basil and uh, and John Reed is the is, is the master pioneer of using fish waste to grow basil and uh, as a as a winter crop it's a very important thing one can compute your returns per square foot and uh, and they're very good so um, that's so that's two of the pieces of the puzzle of the the uh, the uh, across town. On the other side uh, is the. You can see Lake Champlain in the background. That flat roof thing is a brewery, a Magic Hat Brewery. And across the railway tracks is a greenhouse, and uh, that's our greenhouse. And we'll just duck inside for a moment. It uh, it's a it's is a very pretty place inside. There are over 400 species of plants being cultivated and evaluated for their use in waste treatment, and uh, and uh, for for. Four years, it treated sewage from South Burlington, uh, 80,000 gallons a day. Uh, you walk in there, there's no stink, and just beautiful. And you say, hey, this is not a sewage treatment plant. I made the wrong turn. Um, and now it's being converted to to treat all of the waste of the brewery, both the liquid and the spent grain portions. Um, just, I'm showing you this slide before the, the plants grew up. Um, just so you can see it, those tanks extend downward another 10 feet into the ground. Um, the flags represent the various countries that these types of facilities are operating on. Um, the uh, first of all, after the the plants are used to convert waste, um, that's more what it's like now. It's a jungle. Um, all kinds. Always there are are beautiful flowers in blossom, and these are, these are there's another piece of it in there. Um, Always, some rare and exotic plant is producing some beautiful smelling flower and so on um, and what we do there is after the plants uh, complete their life cycle as water purifiers, we then separate them out and, uh, and put them in pots and, uh, which basically and then they go into the horticultural industry and you get a little sign, you can see that sign there that says, you know Besides enjoying this plant and having it purify the water in your, hu- I mean, purify the air in your house, you've also just helped us clean up some water somewhere in the world, and so it's a way of saying thanks. So, anytime any of you are in South Burlington, stop by and buy plants. We like that. Um, and then in the in the uh, in the uh, springtime and early summer, there are all these different species of aquatic plants that people can come by and get for their uh, for their water gardens. And so, what we're trying to demonstrate is that waste conversion is an economic engine, not a burden on society, and uh, increasingly getting there. And one of the best examples um, is is that the best examples I know of is a concept called cascading the waste. And uh, oops, back up. I'm not. Yes, this is a waste cascading. These are bait fish um, and uh, and ornamental fish that are grown on the bacteria that grow naturally in the business of converting waste. So that what we have here now is a facility that provides the winter fishermen with with the golden shiners and the fathead minnows necessary when they go ice fishing, which is a big, big deal up in our part of the country. Uh, and this is a summer crop, which is uh, koi and, and goldfish, which would go in the aquarium trade. What they're doing in the system is removing the sludge that you would ordinarily incinerate or landfill, so that there is a positive role here. Um, then the, the the other part of the brewery waste is the spent grain, and there's a lot of it. And inside the building is this special house uh, where the step one of the cascading of the waste happens um, in there uh, the brewery waste is inoculated is, is blended with straw rye straw pasteurized and on which um, mushrooms are inoculated and the mushrooms go into the, the first of, here's the process where they're where the, the blending with the brewery waste the, the, uh, uh, and the inoculation, is, is the pasteurization is taking place. That's the pasteurization tank in the background. And then these go into these special chambers. And uh, there you can see the bags on racks in these chambers. This is the first phase. And the first phase is where the, the mycelia grow out and fill up the space. Because the idea is that for every pound of waste, you get a pound of gourmet mushroom. And that's the step one in the cascade. And then eventually they, they go down, and then they go into a, the the final room, which is bright brighter light, and uh, you end up with uh, um, these incredibly beautiful. Um, come up and see afterwards. These uh, oyster mushrooms that uh, are really really very remarkable, very very tasty. And again, we can't grow them fast enough, and they. The Dutch MBA said that if our conversion, uh, if our conversion works out, that uh, as little as a thousand square feet would produce a small micro enterprise with a decent return on the investment. That is a thousand square feet a micro production. If it was organic, and if it was sold uh, directly to consumers, you could have a business that small and and, and make it go. Um, and then after the, what happens is that the mushrooms then, they're harvested, and then that material now is filled with all that mycelia, the sort of the, the bulk of it. And that is such good stuff that it is, it is suitable for being fed to livestock as high quality feed with the enzymes and the amino acids that are produced and we're currently testing them uh, against both fish and chickens. Eventually we'll do uh, larger animals but uh, but fish and chickens and the fish are, fish are happy. Uh, the chickens, uh, I don't, the data's not in yet on them but I suspect they will be. Um, that is a, that's what spent grain looks like um, and then the next phase after, after, The the waste has reached that phase. And the third phase is they go into these special bins. There there they are there, they're sort of canopy materials. Thank you, appreciate that. I thought I was just me in the dark. Um, And here, they're cultivated with earthworms. And the product that comes out of the earthworm cultivation is both earthworms, which are blended to produce fish feeds, but also this wonderful, wonderful material, which is a soil created by the earthworm in this relatively short period cycle, one month and at that point, that soil is laid out into shallow beds only about six inches deep on which mixed greens are grown so you can see the, the, the cascading and how each step in the conversion after the mixed greens are grown you then have a a soil amendment. So um, the idea of sort of of, of ecological design in, in sort of very very practical way. Uh, there are the earthworms. Um, is that focused? No. So now I'm I'm moving back to the uh, moving back to sort of uh, putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Um, we 're not all the way there, um, Ocean arcs still needs some uh, philanthropic financial help uh, to complete our analysis of the subcomponents and to complete the business plans and the eco park itself uh, um, needs some investment too to match the city 's contributions. Um, the city is building all the infrastructure, including the heated slabs on which the buildings will go on to um, but Things are moving together very, very quickly, and construction is starting in the spring. What's fascinating about all this is that as we develop these ecology of enterprises, I can begin to see a model for village and urban food production, for ways in which we can employ, in a very nice kinds of environments, more people creating more of the things that help sustain our health. And if you start just looking at mushrooms alone, the different kinds that, uh, that are used as medicines and, and all kinds of other things, and, and the use of, of organic fishes and so on. So I think we can, we can, um, we can begin to think in, in, in what I considered very, very troubled and unpredictable times, we can think of the idea of strengthening our own food security, something that Europeans would understand uh, almost at the blink of an eye, but those of us in North America have a little bit more trouble imagining what food security means. But I think the most important thing that all of this represents, and uh, and uh, I'm glad that some of my students were zany enough to get up in the middle of the night and drive down here to listen to me talk just one more time, um, it's quite a compliment, uh, that, uh, that what we're doing and the reason why I mention them is that we're creating a new culture based on Earth stewardship. And really, that's what everybody in this room is all about. And um, that's why I'm so proud to be a part of it. And I think that Fred Schumacher, if he was here today, uh, especially after he heard the other speakers this afternoon, and say, I think what I sent in motion is going to be all right. I think he would have some optimism. About the future. And thank you.
0: And in any case it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit Center for the Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land and community trust. Building Berkshares, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate or call us at 413 528 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.